0: We have two worlds in, uh, in our world. Um, to explain what I mean, we have two kingdoms, two cities. Augustine wrote about the city of God and the city of man. And we have this city of man that is filled with, filled with deception and oppression and violence. And you can look anywhere at any time to see the prevalence of these things in the world that that we know, in the world around us. You can look at at macro situations. You can look at the the conflicts between nations and ethnic groups um, throughout history or at the present today. You can look in really micro situations at your own heart, the way that you feel when somebody cuts you off when you're driving on on the road or the way that you interact maybe even sometimes with those closest to you, your spouse or your children or people in your family. Um, or the way that you interact with your, your coworkers, your neighbors, etc You can see this kind of uh, world of deception and oppression and violence wherever we turn. It seems sometimes like peace is just the kind of really precarious uh, reality in the midst or in between war after war and violence after violence in the world that we live in around us right now. And I. I would suggest to you that we all actually, it's strange actually in some ways that the, the world is so defined by violence because we all long for, as human beings, we all, we all desire truth and we desire uh, justice and we desire peace. These opposites, if you will, to uh, deception, oppression, and violence are truth and justice and peace. We all long for these things. Not, not just people inside the church, but people who are made in the image of God long for these things. And yet we find them so elusive in the world that we know. One of the reasons that I would suggest to you, let me give you the image of a kebab and a skewer that holds together different pieces uh, of meat and vegetables that you're about to throw on the grill. The skewer that holds together, um, if that metaphor doesn't work for you, or analogy, you can use use something else. Um, The skewer that holds these three things together is is self-interest, that we love justice, and we love truth, and we love peace when it's on our own terms. We love these things when they come in our favor, and when they don't or when they threaten not to, then we resort to these other means of, of maneuvering, and manipulation, deception, of oppression, holding down others, and of ultimately violence, of abusing others to become means to our own ends. This is a, a quote from Ernst Becker's book, Denial of Death. I quoted from it a couple of weeks ago. He says this, we are hopelessly absorbed with ourselves. If we care about anyone, it is usually ourselves first of all. As Aristotle somewhere put it, luck is when the guy next to you gets hit with the arrow. (laughs) 2,500 years of history have not changed man's basic narcissism. Most of the time, for most of us, this is still a workable definition of luck. It is one of the meaner aspects of narcissism that we feel that practically everyone is expendable except ourselves. Everyone is expendable except ourselves. So as long as I'm okay, then truth and justice and peace are advancing in the world today. As long as I'm okay. But if my neighbor is suffering or under oppression or being deceived, it's not a real concern to me. Let me give you an illustration of this from the siblings situation in our house. Uh, which is not a a fair balance of power. Um, We have one child who's about four years older than the next sibling, and sometimes when they play together, um, Chloe will say to Savannah, hey Savannah, I get two dolls and you don't get any. And that's fair. And and that's the rules of of the way that we're gonna play together. And Savannah's like, okay, this is great. So when we've got that ability to to make the decision, to make the call, when we have the power, when there's an imbalance there, we are destined to see things to our advantage, to the expense of other people. That's self-interest at its core. And you could replace a seven-year-old and a three-year-old, and I have to say in Chloe's defense that she's a a wonderful little girl who who knows the Lord. But you could be Chloe, and so could I in this story. And, And so could a nation state. I mean, think of this scenario. Yeah, you know, we're going to take all your natural resources and all of your labor for our excess, and you can call us friends and trade partners. I mean, it's the same scenario, but just writ large across nations. And I know I'm stepping on kind of sensitive territory there, but, but I mean that to say that it's, it's just it grows up with us, this desire to preference ourselves. So self-interest could be defined as advantaging self at the expense of others. And when we live by that principle, Violence and oppression and deception rule the day. The things that we seek to accomplish in the world when self is at the core, ultimately disadvantage the people around us. They're just destined to do that. So contrast that way of that, that city of man with the city of God, for just a moment. The, the, the city of good, of truth and of justice and of peace going forth into the world skewered together by love and not self-interest. Love which is defined as, as advantaging others at the expense of self. And you get a picture of a very different world, a very different kingdom, a very different future. The founding act of this kingdom was God sending His own Son into the world in a situation of weakness on the margins to die at the hands of the powerful elite of His day To not perpetrate violence against people around him, but to absorb violence for the sake of love. This is a world defined by love. And in doing so, as we looked at a little bit, as Ben looked at a little bit last week, returning the world to the way things are supposed to be, restoring us in peace with God where there was enmity, and restoring us in peace with one another where there was hostility. We've been restored to this place of peace now by virtue of Christ's death on the cross. And we've been restored now to a place where we can no longer justify our hostility toward other human beings. And this is the reason. It's because they too have the same means to being reconciled with God. By grace, through faith, through the work of God in Christ Jesus in the cross and the resurrection. And when everybody has the same means of being brought right with God, there is no longer justification for my holding anything against you. Whatever it is that you've done to me. Forgiveness is the rule of the day in a world that's brought back to the way things are supposed to be. A place of peace. There is no peace without forgiveness in the world that we know. And that's what Christ does in the cross and the resurrection. The reason I'm building up this picture of the city of man and the city of God is to ask this question and look at it together. How, as the agents of the kingdom of God, as the agents of good in a world full of evil, how are we to interface with the world in which we find ourselves? How are we to pursue this mission call that we have as the people of God, as a people of peace and not violence? We're going to look at Romans, 14, or Romans 12, 14 through 21 to look at this, to, to address this question. And let me just remind you that we're in a series called Living in Light of the Resurrection, where we've been looking at these different realities that come out of the work of God in Christ in His death and resurrection. And we looked at hope, and then we looked at a hope filled mission. And we looked at peace last week and the, the, the way in which God made peace. And then this week, and this question, is a peace filled mission. What does it mean to have a peace-filled mission as the people of God? And next week we'll look at joy, and then lastly, a joy-filled mission. And then we'll launch into Pentecost and looking at power and the spirit. But this is the, the, the place that we find ourselves tonight is asking this question: What does it mean to inter, how do we interface with the world of violence, oppression uh, and deception around us? How do we interface with that? The key for this is verse 21 of Romans chapter 12. The last verse. Do not be, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is Paul's call upon the church in Rome. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the call. That's the, that's the, 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 the summary statement of everything that he's just said in addressing how the church is to interact with the world around it. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. So, well and good. We're supposed to be uh, uh, agents of good in the world today. So, we get that. Now we go out and we start doing good from our place of safety and security and detachment. Wrong, obviously. I mean, it's one thing to think about the, the church as an agent of good in the world. And that is true, obviously, and that's what Paul's saying. But it's another thing to consider being an agent of good, an agent of truth and justice and peace in the world today when the world is full of deception and oppression and violence and when that deception, oppression and violence is often pointed right at your head. Do you get what I'm saying? It's one thing to go from a place of neutrality into a world and to be perpetrators of good. It's another thing to go from a place of involvement and engagement where you're often at the short end of the stick in having been perpetrated against and then to be called to go out into the world as an agent of good. As the kingdom of God advances through the church, there will be there will be persecution, there will be opposition. Miroslav Wolf, in his great book, Exclusion and Embrace, says this. He says, especially in a creation infested with sin, the proclamation and enactment of the kingdom of truth and justice is never an act of pure positing, but always ready. A transgression, always already a transgression into spaces occupied by others. Active opposition is therefore inseparable from the proclamation of the kingdom of God. As we go forth as agents of truth and justice and peace, as those who have been brought to peace with God and peace with others, we will always encounter opposition because the world is built on power and manipulation and maneuvering. And those who bear witness to these things of truth and justice and peace, by virtue of that witness call out to others the wrongdoing of oppression and deception and violence. So there will be opposition in that way. But lest we think that we're sort of um, agents of good, 100% pure, you know, no, no corn syrup added kinds of people, we have to recognize that we go out as agents of the kingdom, as people who are implicated in a world of oppression and deception and violence as well. So in many ways, the violence that we will receive in this world is oftentimes our due uh, reward for our own participation in the systems and the ways that the world works. Unlike Jesus himself, who did not participate in those things. So there's violence being coming at us for two reasons. One, that we're implicated. And the other, that as we bear witness to these things, the world naturally resists it and turns away. So the question is, how do we respond? This is just really where, where I'd like to focus now. How, how, do we, how do we respond when in the world opposition we encounter opposition, when we encounter violence against us, when we encounter insult at work, when somebody slanders our name for no just reason, uh, when somebody uh, hurts someone that we love? How do we respond in these kinds of situations? There really are three options. One is that you can ignore it The other is that you can retaliate. You can fight fire with fire. And then the third and the option that Paul puts before the church in Rome here and that I want to hold up before you is that we don't simply ignore it, but we respond to it, not in kind, but in its opposite. That's far different than simply ignoring and looking the other way. Look at what Paul says, verses 14, 17, and 19. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. That's the first hammer blow. The second, 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And the third, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. This radical ethic defines the kingdom of God, defines the city of God. And it's consistent in every way with what Jesus himself taught in Matthew 5. These words are almost a direct echo there of, I tell you, don't persecute your enemies, but love your enemies. Don't curse them, but love them. He charts a course of of this path of turning the other cheek, of walking the extra mile. These subversive ways of proclaiming the goodness of the God that we love and that we serve. By not picking up a rock to throw it back. So they're consistent with with Jesus' own um, teaching and they're consistent with the teaching of the whole New Testament. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul says elsewhere, "...see that no one repays anyone evil for evil." but always seek to do good and to one another and to everyone don't repay evil for evil but always seek to do good don't just ignore the evil that's done to you and look past it but seek to do good don't just not bless your enemy but bless him when he's done something evil to you this is a radical ethic that Paul gives um Some of you will remember the Energizer Bunny commercials of the Energizer Bunny just kind of pounding away through scene after scene after scene. And that's a good picture of the church and of the agents of the kingdom pounding away at goodness, at truth, at justice, at peace, in scene after scene after scene of our lives. Whatever it is in the circumstances that we encounter, however difficult they become and however much opposition that we face. And much of that good that work of of good over evil is to be done to those that we don't like. Done to those who are undermining our advancement, our progress, our rights, etc., etc. I occasionally get emails from a friend of mine named Leonard Rogers who spent much of his life over in the Middle East working with Youth for Christ in Beirut, Lebanon. and He's now um, the Executive Director for Evangelicals for Middle East Understanding. He has a lot of... um, just influence in the world of the Middle East and the conflicts over there, and among persecuted Christians in the Arab world. And on January 7th, I got an email from him. It's a kind of a prayer update from Christians in Egypt. Uh, January 7th is the day that they celebrate Christmas in the Coptic Orthodox Church. And on Christmas Eve, coming out of a midnight service, some gunmen, Islamic gunmen, had come by and opened fire on a crowd of Christians and killed six Christian worshippers and one Muslim security guard. And this email recounts those events and then it's a call to prayer and the prayer requests kind of go, you know, pray for the victims' families, pray for the church, pray for Christians that they wouldn't be afraid. And then the fourth out of five prayer requests, which is just such a rebuke to us in the West, is pray for those who perpetrated this violence that they would come to know the forgiveness of God in Christ. And that's the kind of response of the people of God when evil is perpetrated against them, that Paul is invoking here. How do we go about this this energizer bunny of good, if you will, in the world today? Not from a position of security and separation, but from, and not in a way as aloof, not in some way sitting away from the world that is potentially or actually hostile to us, but fully engaged. Look at verses um, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Everybody pretty much agrees that Paul's writing about the way Christians interface with the world and not with one another. He's saying, go out into your world and identify in solidarity with the people around you. Maybe, in fact, the people that are persecuting you and committing evil against those that you love and trying to silence your cause. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another don't be haughty but associate with the lowly so in solidarity and in humility in meekness fully engaged incarnated in the world around you that may be in fact hostile to you nonetheless this is the way that good overcomes evil by engaging engaging our enemies So he quotes Proverbs 25, If your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now this isn't a covert, backdoor way of doing violence to somebody else. Uh, We have to understand this as being the the kind of shame that results when good is done from one whom you've wronged back to you. A shame in in committing such sort of uh, unjustified violence and evil against someone else. It's probably cliched. Nonetheless, it works. Jean Valjean, Les Miserables, going into the bishop's house, needing a place to stay, stealing his silverware, walking away, getting caught by the police, the bishop coming up to him and saying, Jean, why didn't you take the candlesticks I gave you as well? And giving them to him in in that moment. Which then, as the rest of the novel portrays, is the beginning of evil being overcome by good. But we don't need to look to literature for a good example of this. We can look to Jesus himself as the one who on the cross absorbs the violence of a wicked world, of the city of man, upon himself. And in so doing, opens up a way for evil to be overcome in a way that was unprecedented and in a way that was very personally poignant and real for you and for me. How, you might ask, how in the world could we go out and walk in this way of not not retaliating, but of responding to evil with blessing? How in the world could we do that? Well, Hebrews 12 gives us this good picture of look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Look to this one Jesus as your example. And 1 Peter talks about it in this way. We look to Jesus as the greatest example and recognize that we were the enemy who deserved to be crushed. We were the enemy who deserved to be excluded. We were the enemy who deserved to have violence done to us. And yet instead, we were given love. We were given mercy. We were given forgiveness. So there is no citizenship in the kingdom of God apart from being an enemy who was dealt with kindly and by grace and by mercy. And there is therefore no participation in the kingdom of God apart from being an agent of that same grace and mercy and forgiveness and love to those who don't deserve it, who aren't contrite. This isn't for a special forces part of the kingdom. This is for everybody to be engaged in this kind of radical ethic of enemy love in the name of truth and justice and peace in the world around us. So we look to Jesus and we also entrust ourselves to Him who judges justly. There is no way that we can pursue this peace-centered, peace-filled way of interfacing with a world of violence apart from the deep conviction that one day our God will right every wrong. One day our God will make all things new. One day our God will somehow restore the world to the way it was meant to be in full. And it's only in having a depth of conviction in that future day justice of God for you personally and for the world in in total that we can in any way take a step in the direction of this way of life that Jesus is calling us to, this way of mission in the world today, in trusting ourselves, to Him who judges justly. Deeply trusting in Him. So what does this mean about a peace-filled mission? In conclusion, I just want you to think for a moment about somebody in your life that you don't like. Think about that person, there's somebody, I know there is, that just rubs you the wrong way. Or that has wronged you deeply, perhaps. Or has wronged someone that you love or is covertly kind of trying to undermine your reputation. Think about that person for just a second. How would this text and being agents of the kingdom impact that relationship? Your first thoughts probably aren't really warm and kind toward a person like that. But what if empowered by the Spirit of God... That person became one of the primary object of your prayers, of your blessing, of your encouragement, of your support, of your phone call maybe tonight. That's exactly what this this mission that we've been sent on as agents of the kingdom calls us to in the world today. To hold no grudges, not to stand aloof from those that we don't like, not to take matters into our own hands, to try to wrong them in some way that we'll get back to them, to, to, to take revenge, to avenge ourselves, but to pray for, to bless, to do good to those people around us, the very people that we would rather uh, push away and consign to a life somewhere outside of our world Those are the people that we're called to love. Trusting in the God that will make all things right one day. That will make all things new. Amen.